Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast, and today's episode is a bit of an inspirational story, hey, Dad? Well, it's an unbelievable story. I mean, the humble bus tragedy has spawned so many different stories, um, some some more heartwarming than others. A lot of them are are just tragic and sad, Uh, but Tyler Smith is determined to take his trauma and get the lessons that he's learned from it and broadcast them out to the world. Yeah. And uh, Tyler talks about how it's, it's hard to be compared, how it's hard to be that group. That is the Humboldt crash, whether it be survivors or victims. And he talks about in the pod, how it's, it's hard to be that person, but he perseveres and he goes through all these trials and tribulations to get to the point where he's back being able to play hockey. And it's really inspirational and awe inspiring to see this man go through such a traumatic event in his life and then continue on to do bigger and better things than he ever would have imagined. Yeah, I agree. Like that's a great point, Liam. I think you have to think that, um, you know, a junior a hockey player in Canada, the, the next thing he could hope to go on and do probably doesn't end up with a platform like he has today. Um, He took the tragedy, he took the trauma, he took, all the work that went into getting back to square one and he's made a career out of it, whether it's, um, you know, his speaking or his, his own podcast or all the other things that he's doing now to, to share that, that experience with the group. Um, I I think it's a testament to who he was and who he is that he's able to uh, keep, keep going and, and helping people all the way along. Yeah, it's a really interesting, great pod, and I don't, I don't think we can do it in any justice here. But uh, you usually do the kicking over, so allow me to kick it over to Tyler. Hello, Gord. How are you? I'm doing good, Tyler. How are you doing? You know what? No complaints. I, um, I think I'm ready to snowboard again. But uh, although this, uh, this did come hot and heavy outside here, but uh, other than that, I'm, uh, I'm doing well. Yeah, I was actually just rolling through my Instagram for some reason. And on December 1st last year, I posted something about motor- guys riding their motorcycles to the gym. And, and here we are, middle of November, and we've already <laughs> been um, we've already been snowed bound for, for 10 days or two weeks already. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's a bit sad at times, for sure. But we, I mean, we were pretty fortunate. I think uh, July, August, September, and even most of October was was great. So yeah no it, it's been uh it's been really good and uh and every once in a while you have to deal with a little bit of snow i mean we live in calgary it was it was 20 26 below driving to hockey on uh on friday morning in down medicine hatway and then uh and then it was plus four or something by the time we got back yesterday afternoon so that's them's the breaks i guess yeah exactly <laughs> really uh, really 
happy that you were willing to take it take some time to sit and chat with us i mean um people who who may not know who tyler smith is will know exactly um who you are once we talk about the humble bus crash but uh but realistically um the humble bus crash is as big an event as it was in your life was just one event in your life there has to be a a whole bunch else that went into tyler smith before and after that yeah um it's interesting when i look back like i uh even in like my talks that i do like i i in the mental health space i guess you could say um i never really had anything that kind of you know made me really think about you know mental health and just like put that as a priority but i mean other than that i was uh just a, I guess, a regular kid. I really enjoyed people. I really enjoyed, you know, social settings. I loved being with, especially my teammates. I loved being with my family. Like, uh, we're big family people. Um, and I think I just really enjoyed trying my best to flourish in social settings. And I think, you know, now looking back and uh, post-crash, I think that was obviously a big, um, you know, detriment to I guess my little healing journey because I was always still trying to put everybody else in front of myself and make sure that you know I'm putting this mask on and trying so hard to make sure everybody else around me knows that I'm good you know I'm okay I, I I'm, I'm trying I'm doing my best every day but I'm I'm really okay and um but I think now I mean I'm obviously happy to be where I'm at now um but it's still I think from the beginning, I've definitely been a everyday um, person, even, you know, before the accident, just kind of, I, I, I just enjoy living um, each day as it comes. I'm not a huge, I guess, goal setter. I'm not a huge, um, you know, person that really looks at the future, even though I do think that is very beneficial. Um, there's people in my life that, you know, set goals and, and, and try and achieve them. And, and that's amazing. And I think I do have things that I want to achieve in my life, but I think it's weird going through a traumatic experience in a sense where you know you just never know and you just never really know what's going to happen tomorrow so I think now getting to a place where I can really you know just live in the present um, and you know reflect back on the fact that you know this all does stem from my childhood and and my upbringing and the fact that you know I didn't focus on mental health a ton back then, but now I can. And I'm not saying I'm going to make up for all those years that I didn't focus on it, but now I can, you know, really put that at the forefront of my life and and see my relationships around me blossom just because we are able to have those meaningful conversations. So, um, yeah, it's been a crazy journey. I, I moved to Calgary only a year and a half ago, and I love it. The hockey community is small, so I instantly was able to, you know, connect with friends that, you know, played with a friend back home or whatever it may be. So, that part was uh, was not a worry, which was really nice. But uh, you know, I've uh, I've enjoyed the move. I've enjoyed challenging myself in that sense a little. But I, uh, my parents are still back home in Leduc. My brother's still back home in Leduc, and um, I think you know, still going back and um, you know, being with friends and family is still very important to me as well. Yeah, and I think the the fact that you you were a social person before you your accident and and you you learned how to kind of cope and do things. And then, and then the accident happened. I mean, that, that was obviously something as traumatic and as big of an event in your life. No one's going to have the answer for that. So I think anyone in, in that situation would have probably had to, to figure out what was going to work for them. But it's, it's interesting that when something like this happens to, you know, a, a young, to this point, successful, you know, athlete, um, 
it's it's always interesting to see how people react. I mean, you you describe yourself as kind of a grinder at hockey and, and a glue guy, dressing room guy. But I mean, let's face it, a, a grinder glue guy at the junior A level in, in Western Canada is still a, a pretty elite hockey player. And you've had, you know, things go reasonably well. You put your work in and, and saw your success. And then all of a sudden something completely out of your control happens like this. And, you, and you're kind of forced to, you know, gut check and figure out how are you going to make this work going forward? Because now this thing is out of your control. Yeah, I think that was uh, that was a hard thing for me to navigate just because I, uh, I mean, I had a bunch of physical injuries, so I kind of just axed hockey. Um, I originally just had like no plans of going back. I didn't really want to. I knew that at the end of the day, hockey was my safe space, but I knew that at the end of the day, hockey also was never going to look the same. Um, I think it's it's tough because anybody you talk to, that team in Humboldt was super special. And you always find yourself comparing. And I'm a big believer that, you know, it's not about comparing your stories and comparing groups or comparing this. But I mean, for me, I know that I will always compare to that group. And that's just because, I mean, I don't know if it was just the epitome of what it looks like to have a special team culture. I don't know what, I don't know what it was, but I mean, the fact that we just, you know, fully embraced every single day and took every talk, every opportunity to learn and give back and, and, you know, try and create as much success as possible for each other. I think that was just something that was so captivating. And so, you know, that's why we all gravitated towards it. And I think me going back even to Humboldt after my recovery and after all my injuries, you know, healed up. I think it, for me, it was just like the only thing I knew. And it was the only thing that I wanted to really do was just like, we had so much love and support. So the least I could do was, you know, try and give back in a way where, you know, I could play for everybody we lost. I could play for everybody that was involved that day. I could play for everybody that supported us that day. And I think that was the only thing that kind of just like, I had my horse blinders on. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I was doing everything in my power to, to give back in a way that I knew best. And that was just to play hockey. And that was just to play the game I love and to try and force myself, I guess, not force myself, but at that time I didn't really, I didn't know if I could just go back into that role I was, like that glue guy person that just loves being in the dressing room. And I wish I could have got back to that, but I honestly just like never got to that point because I left, I was, I was always left comparing to that, to that room, to that group, to that atmosphere, to that, you know, and if it, I don't know if it was a case of if it was a whole different rink and, you know, if they're humble, built a new rink and a new dressing room, it would have been different. But I mean, we were in that same atmosphere, we were in that same environment. And I always just found myself, you know, in the back of my mind thinking about, how much better this was only a couple months ago. Um, and that's not fair to, you know, the new players. That's not fair to the new coaches. That's not fair to anybody just because they're doing their best to try and, you know, create some success for this team that has just went through something unfathomable. And, um, and that's obviously why I guess I made the decision to step away, but um, yeah, it was a, it was a journey. And, and even that summer after, I mean, trying so hard to, you know, just be that bubbly person that get togethers at events again uh, with my friends and family. I just never got to that point. I mean, I thought I did. I really had this like idea in my head that, you know, I was I was being that guy again. But everybody around me knew that I was just like never going to be getting to that place again. So and, and you talk a little bit in some of your some of your published interviews and, and whatnot about, you know, trying to find some closure in that time. I think you went back and played 10 games, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. 
So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just one game. It was, you, you went and really gave it the college try. Cause to your point, you, you didn't know where else to look for that closure. Um, but once you figured out it wasn't there, what, what did that next step look like? Did you have to, you know, talk to your parents and say, this ain't it or your, your girlfriend or, or how did you, you know, at this point, you're not fully immersed in this mental health space, but you kind of are seeing your way to it. Um, you know, like I said, you, you maybe didn't have the tools from a, you know, a double A, triple A hockey. They don't focus on stuff like that. And, and that's where you're drawing from. So, so what, what did you have to do to kind of take the next step forward? Um, yeah, this is something I definitely like to highlight in my talks because it was such a like pivotal moment in my life. Um, I think I best describe it as anybody that loves something and anybody that really enjoys something like as soon as you lose that fun factor of it and that pure enjoyment of what you're doing, it's so hard to get back. And I'm not just saying, obviously, this is solely involved in hockey. I'm saying this is involved in people's sports lives their work lives, their love lives, whatever it is. I mean, as soon as you lose that love and enjoyment for something, it's just so hard to attain that again. And I think for me, after those 10 games, I mean, I'm really glad I did go back and experiment and try it out and meet some new people and be, you know, be back for everybody. Um, but it just wasn't for me anymore. And I think like these new teammates who I had no idea who they really were before. I mean, I was making connections with them and I still have, you know, good connections with a lot of those guys that I played with. But they're all kind of having this these expectations about you know smitty and about this you know this guy that's coming back and this guy that was in the, that group involved in the accident and i think it wasn't a case of i wasn't meeting their expectations but it was a case of i knew that i wasn't meeting my own expectations which was translating into the fact that these guys knew that i wasn't meeting my expectations as well and if i can't you know bring my best off the ice then I think that's just going to deteriorate my on ice performance as well. And I, I mean, I had so many things that were constantly going inside my mind and I had so many thoughts and so many this and so many that. And after a road trip down to Wayburn and Estevan, um, I was already starting to have these thoughts of like, should I really be doing this? You know, should I really be trying? Um, I'm still that same role player. Like, it's not like I'm coming back and I'm playing 25 minutes a night. And I accepted that. I was totally okay with that. They brought in a really good new core of players that, you know, had a lot of offense, had a lot to give. And I knew that I just didn't have that. And after 10 games, I mean, just sending one simple text to my parents, just saying I'm not having fun anymore was like that ultimate like catalyst into the fact that I do need to go home um, but also getting home that night to my billet parents house who you know I consider my billets from humble like a second mom and dad like they're just incredible incredible people um, and having that strong relationship really was beneficial um, for me coming back especially but they also knew I mean we unfortunately had an empty seat at the dinner table because our you know our other billet brother Parker Dobrin was not with us anymore and I think even those you know those dinner table you know chats that we, we used to have I can't speak for Paul and Nancy but I think we were all missing that we were all missing that fun we were all missing and I'm trust me we still had a lot of fun we still had laughs we still had good conversations but what we had in that house you know a year prior was super special and it was super unique and I finally you know opened up to them and let them know how I'm feeling and my Bella mom 
looked me dead in the eyes after a big hug and she just said, you're going to promise me that you seek help. And I think that was that like really initial moment where I was like, wow, you know, I've tried so, so hard for these past however many months to put this mask on. But like by me doing that, it's realistically only worsening my relationships with the people that love me the most just because they want what's best for me and they can see the pain they can see the struggle but this is also a very unique situation for them to navigate as well because how do you bring up that conversation and how do you force it out of somebody that doesn't really want to come to terms with it yet and i think that was that moment where it was like wow you know like this is that this is my decision like i know my decision i came to terms with my decision but this is what i needed to really move past the fact that you know i originally thought that i was letting everybody else down and i think that was just like kind of going back to the person i was just like that full you know social person that wants to you know make sure that everybody else around me is doing but good but this was that moment where it was like shit you know like this is uh this is it. And I can't keep forcing it. And I can't keep trying this hard to put this mask on. And, um, and and yeah, I think to this day, this is still, that's still a moment that I will, you know, forever hold very close to my heart just because she was able to, you know, go out of her comfort zone to have that meaningful conversation that needed to be had. She didn't need, she didn't need to say that but she did because she loved me and she did because she wanted to see me succeed again and, and not succeed in, you know, in life for monetary reasons or whatever, but just like succeed as a person and just get back to a place where I am, you know, putting myself first and, and healing and allowing myself to heal. So yeah, it was a, it was a wild, uh, you know, couple of days, but obviously coming home was probably one of the better decisions I've ever made. Yeah. Well, I mean that you think about, all the different roles in a successful sports team um like the 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 role you played before the accident was the most transparent right i mean the the guys that that do that role like they they have to be all in on that role and that's who they are or the guys see it right away and it doesn't work like you know and and maybe maybe some of the other stuff you didn't do you know whatever fighting or scoring all the goals or whatever um, if you can't bring that other stuff and the guys see through that, then you know what I mean? And so now you're stuck trying to be a part of the team the only way you know how, but you, you can, you can feel that this drastic change in your life has changed, changed the landscape for you. I, I, I mean, 10 games sounds like an eternity to be like that. And, and for you to be able to come, come through with that. And, and I, I know exactly how you're talking. Like I grew up just outside of Nippon and uh, I, I know those like growing up, we played all our hockey over in Nippon and those families all had billets for the Hawks, right? Like I remember all, all those families always had young guys and they were like, you know, maybe only a few years older than us, but I mean, they felt like they were grown men. And then now as I'm in my mid forties, I look back on it and, and friends of mine have kids who play junior A. And to me, they're still just kids and they're living somewhere far flung, you know. So so for your your billet mom to to sit down with that, like you say, open spot at her table and and kind of let you go, but make you promise to get help. I mean, that uh that ex that that explains the entire uh, you know, Canadian junior hockey situation in a in a one story right there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, we already had a bond. Um, I think it's a case of, you know, if the accident were to not happen, um, I would have still had a relationship with my billets. Like, that's just a no-brainer. Um, they were special, special people, and I still talk to them um, quite a bit. But even to touch on your point, like, there was a time before the accident, like that year, where, I mean, I wanted to be that guy and I loved being that guy. I loved trying to, you know, I didn't ever consider myself the glue of the dressing room by any means, just because I didn't, I didn't like to label the position. I was just like, I just enjoy people. Like, I just love my teammates. Like, this is fun. Like I get to make memories every day and I get a new experience. And, but there was a time where I kind of just like went mute. And I think, you know, now I look back on it and I was like, that is completely related to, you know, my mental health, just like needing a break because I, you know, sometimes in life it sucks, but you you do feel as though sometimes you want that recognition and you want that reassurance that, you know, what you're doing, although it may not lead to a ton of success, you know, in the stat sheet or in those columns, I mean, it's still worthy and, it, and it's still wanted. And, you know, after a couple of days of kind of just being quiet and, and going about my business and not really being myself, I mean... I had countless teammates come up to me and, you know, ask what's going on. How can we help? You know, what do you need? I'll go talk to coach Darcy. Do you want more ice time? Do you want this? Do you want that? And I think even just like those relationships that instantly, it just showcases what we have. And it just showcases the fact that, you know, we were constantly just like looking out for each other. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was special. And I think that's just like the, the one word that can probably encapsulate what we had. So, so you're, you go back home and you're, you know, you're Leduc to, to Humboldt is, you know, six or eight or whatever hours away. So you're, you're removing yourself from that as much as you can in, in the aftermath of what happened. And, and you're, you're trying to make sense of what's going on inside your head and you're, you're moving towards this mental health awareness and how you're going to manage it. But obviously before you can get to the point where you're going to go and talk about it with other people, um, you're trying to get it sorted out in your own head. Did you, did you go for help right away or did you have to spend some time kind of figuring out on your own or what, what did that initial period of trying to understand that you're doing this for Tyler right now look like? Yeah, that was, uh, I'd have to almost like go back and talk to my parents about like how that timeline kind of broke down. Um, I ended up doing, I can't remember how I got connected with, I think it was honestly just like a friend of a friend knew of a, um, a therapy clinic or psychology clinic or whatever you want to call it. And um, I originally didn't really know how to go about that search of like, you know, figuring out who's best for me, figuring out if this is going to work. And I got really fortunate. Um, I instantly found somebody that just like I connected with and I could just sit in the room and, you know, swear, Babylon, do my own thing. And it, there was just, you know, like no, no judgment involved. And I, I honestly can say I had like the preconceived notions and, um, and, I didn't really know if this is going to work for me, you know, sitting in a room with a stranger when I, you know, I can't even sit in a room with my, my family and talk about my problems. Like why, why would this different setting make any difference? Um, but I think I went into it with these high expectations and I was very fortunate to find somebody that really challenged me like off the hop. Um, and it wasn't a case of she had all the, proper concrete advice and feedback that I needed to implement into my life. But it was a case of 
it was somebody new. It was somebody who didn't know me. And it was somebody that I could just, you know, sit in the room and, and just share. Um, and don't get me wrong. I have an amazing support system and I can definitely do that. But I think it was just like a new fresh face that had no, you know, preconceived notions about me. Um, and I was able to go, I can't remember how many sessions I went to, but I know that, you know, to this day, when I need it, I can message her and I can message that person and they will always be there. And I wish, you know, I honestly believe that everybody should go to therapy at some point in their lives. Um, it's different. It's unique. And it's, uh, it challenged me a lot. And I look back and, um, and still kick myself that I, you know, maybe didn't fully go in with as open mind as I, I should have. Um, but then that kind of translated into what I, what I now do, I guess, is like the public speaking and the, and the being aware and the being vulnerable. Um, and, I just, you know, I still can't thank obviously my therapist and my Bill and mom enough for, you know, giving me that, to be blunt, that little kick in the ass that I needed, you know, to go. Um, Cause I probably would have never done it without that. But I mean, even I got home and I, uh, there's a junior B team in town and all my friends were playing that I grew up with, you know, and, and it was a case of, you know, I tried hockey, I tried the junior A thing, and it didn't really work for me. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I can just go play again and just go enjoy and just go try to find some love and not have all these worries constantly in my mind. And um, I went back and actually played for the junior B team in town and, and had a lot of fun doing it. And I think even my mom still to this day, she was like, that was that first time where I really saw like your, your pure smile again, just like playing hockey. Like I was, as much as I obviously still was devoted and committed to it like I would you know be bopping around between whistles like I didn't really have a lot of cares and worries when I was out on the ice and I think that was like something I really needed just to to find that passion and love for the game that I've always had because I was losing it I lost it for a long time but now I mean I was able to just be me out there and yeah it was it was quite freeing actually it's interesting that you talk about that. I, I've seen that with various people in my life where, you know, they get playing good hockey and they're, they're feel like they have to act a certain way in order to justify playing that level of hockey. And then for whatever reason, they get cut, they don't make a team, they come back. And instead of going directly to the next one, they go back to play with their friends or they go back to play somewhere. And all of a sudden, Oh yeah, this is why I love this game. And it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting to hear that, it was probably a product of your getting getting some help and getting some therapy that you're able to enjoy again, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there was obviously a lot of things that kind of went into that. Um, but now I was in a headspace where, you know, as I was always so focused on everybody else. And now, like, I could just focus on me and I could just, you know, find what was going to work for me and find the enjoyment in whatever it may be. Um, and I was finally learning that there is no proper way to do this. And I think, you know, I probably could have had these conversations with the people around me originally, you know, like what works for you, you know, how can, how best do you describe your journey or, you know, whatever we went through, how did you get through it? But I was just like, never curious about that. Cause I was like, Oh, there's like probably just like a, a magic formula to this. And there's like a set of guidelines that you follow when you want to heal from trauma or, or grief or whatever it may be. And I was so close minded to that 
that there is no, or that I was so closed minded to that, that I was just like never allowing myself to be like open minded about the fact that, you know, whatever you want to do, just try it. Um, you know, whatever works for you, embrace that and embrace the fact that, you know, this is a, this is a journey and this is going to be a long time coming and there's no end goal in sight. You know, there's no battle to be won here. It's just a case of if you can figure out what works for you and you can challenge yourself in that same sense in order to, you know, just put that at the forefront of your mind. Then it's just like, oh, you know, like I honestly wish somebody would have told me that a long time ago. But then again, I probably probably I probably wouldn't have put it into, you know, my own perspective just because I had these these things that I thought were the way to do it. So yeah. Well and it's interesting that for somebody who's, you know, till that point, it's been your life was around sports or you know you probably had other interests but for sports it was something that was really easy to measure yourself it was really easy to measure progress it was winners losers it was all predicated on that and then you go into this um you know you have this uh, traumatic incident and you're and you're trying to heal and you're working in the mental health space where none of that applies, right? There is no, I won today's therapy lesson. It's, or even I, I made progress, but I'm still not where I was two weeks ago because of something. And, and now you're at the point where you're trying to share this with people. You're trying to, you know, show people that if you can embrace this type of stuff, there is hope, there is better days ahead. And it's, it's interesting that when you are going through all of this, you're able to kind of close these loops behind you all the way and get to yourself to a point where you're able to stand up in front of a bunch of people and talk about your experiences and leave people with, you know, feeling like there's hope for them. Maybe, maybe the thing they need to do is reach out and talk to somebody. Yeah. I really, uh, <laughs> it's funny. Cause like when I, when I look back on, you know, those first speaking engagements or those first articles and stuff like that, like I, I, for me, was in a mindset back then where it was just like, well, this is new, you know, like, I'm just going to try it. And if it works, perfect. If it doesn't, you know, I'll just move on to the next thing. But now I look back and it's just like so interesting that it has come to this now and it has suddenly become a big passion in my life. Um, And I now, like we talked about before, I really do appreciate the fact that there is a lot of power in a story and there is a lot of power in a story that, you know, sometimes you don't anticipate that you need to hear but you do need to hear it in the moment. And I mean, he, that was even true for my first speaking engagement. I did it in White Court, Alberta, and there was really no expectations for it. Like I, I wrote down my speech, like I had like five pages, I rolled up to the podium. Um, I'm speaking to a bunch of, you know, 15 to 18 year old kids, and then a bunch of people in the audience. I mean, I was, I was nervous as hell. Like I, I didn't really know how this was going to go. Like I, I, I actually purposely put in a couple like lighter moments in my speech to try and get some like engagement and some laughs from the crowd. And then obviously I got deep and, and kind of chatted more about the mental health journey and just like the grief and loss and stuff. And, and I think that's where I never thought I would have connections with the older crowd, especially. Um, I never thought I'd be, you know, having conversations post speech about, you know, how this really helped them and how this really impacted them and how this what will hopefully allow them to, you know, take care of themselves more and take care of their grief more and take care of their, you know, their own self. Um, I think that was like the the most eye-opening experience of it all for me was like, wow, you know, like I never, I first off rolled up to this speech, not really 
thinking that people wanted to listen to me. I thought it was more of just like, oh, you know, like a, obviously this impacted the, a lot of hockey, of, of the hockey world. You know, if I can shed light on on something, then perfect. But I think, you know, those conversations that I had after is what really, I guess, fueled my little passion to to try and keep doing this. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to obviously speak to a variety of audiences. And I think still I'm learning a lot and I'm, I'm constantly trying to challenge myself to, you know, add new things and, and, and new experiences that I've had that I maybe wouldn't regularly talk about in front of a big group of people. But then again, like, it's just like that one, like for some people that come to a, an engagement, like it's just like that one sentence that might stick in their mind. And I think that is why um, I have just continually loved, you know, those connections afterwards, especially because you just never know when somebody needs to hear or see something. And um, I still can't believe I'm really doing it. Like it's still, you know, when I go up and, and talk for 45 minutes, I actually don't really enjoy talking about myself. So I find it interesting that, you know, people want to hear me talk talk about you know myself and my my journey for whatever it is 30 to 45 minutes straight but I think it's just you just never know um and I mean this has been a challenging couple of years for a lot of people and I think that we're starting to you know see the fact that a lot of people are really taking into account how this has impacted them and I've had many discussions lately about you know I just had a discussion on our podcast about a guy that is now like super appreciative of the fact that he unra unraveled his childhood and unraveled like his past experiences because it led to so many things in his life. And I think, you know, even if it's not a case of offering hope or inspiration to somebody in the crowd, it's, it's a case of offering that simple reminder that, you know, what you went through 10 years ago, two years ago, 15 years ago, it still matters and it's still a part of your story and there's going to be trauma attached and that's okay. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been wild. <laughs> well, and, and something that comes out of that, that is often not spoken of or thought of is, is there is a unifying thread to that once you've lived through something like that and how you, how you band together afterwards and then keep it, keep doing it throughout like you know you guys there's a handful of people in the world that that share that common bond that you share with those guys those people and um nobody will ever take it away from you and you guys get to get to have that and and you you know your your family was fortunate that that their child survived there were some families that that were less fortunate um you guys get to have that bond and when you go up and talk about that you don't have to have a feeling of of that kind of mental health degradation for it to be meaningful because you're going to talk about your parents and there's going to be a parent in the room that thinks about their child in that manner and and there's like there's no end to the good that can come from sitting in and listening in to somebody's story like the one that you tell yeah, it's uh, like it's funny because I literally just I had a speech on Thursday and I was able to go out for a, a beverage with a um, a gentleman that I've gotten close with over the the past couple of years. Um, I won't name names or anybody, but uh, we had actually a conversation because there is so much emphasis now on like you know educating kids and educating people or like you know our youth, um, which I do find super super important, and uh, that's why I love speaking to our youth because it has been such you know 
weird circumstances for them and unforeseen circumstances these past couple of years, especially socially with pressures, whatever it may be. But I honestly think like educating, not, not so much educating, but like just making this an open discussion for our parents as well. And our, you know, our, our, our people in our life that, you know, we have continually looked up to as heroes. You know, my dad is my hero. My mom is my hero. Like I love my parents. I have such amazing relationships with a lot of parents in my life. And, and I think, honestly coming back to it and reminding ourselves that you know our parents and our our elders you i guess you could say have went through a lot and i think there's so much pressure and there's so much emphasis on making sure that as parents we're you know i can't speak for parents because i'm not a parent but i think there is so much emphasis on parents making sure that they're you know doing their best to take care of their children and make sure they're checking in on them and, and doing this and doing that but i think at the end of the day i mean i hope that we're putting an emphasis on the fact that our parents deserve to have those spaces as well and deserve to have that time and space for themselves to unravel what has it been like for them whether it's these past couple of years or whether it's you know a, a traumatic event from their childhood i mean there's so many things that I now appreciate so much more. And I think that is just like purely conversation. And I think it's refreshing to, you know, have conversations with parents that are becoming vulnerable with their kids. And I think it's, it's a, probably a weird balance for parents just because you never want to force it upon a, your kid or force it upon, you know, because they are going through stuff as well. But I think really opening up that space for for our parents to share and to make sure that they feel accepted as well and make sure that they are allowed to become vulnerable um, is a huge thing. And it's something that I now have never thought about, but I now, I think I have a newfound appreciation for the fact that, you know, we just, we think of our parents as superheroes because they can do it all. And I think I've experienced it. A lot of people have experienced it. I mean, it's just crazy to look back on what our parents did for me and my brother. And I think there is probably so many times where I could have been more curious about how they were doing. And I could have been more curious about, you know, their perspective. And it could have been more curious about, you know, what makes you you and why are you you know why are you so amazing and why are you so loving and and i hope you know that you know you're allowed to 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 have this space for yourself as well and i don't know it's kind of just like this new new thought i've had after this conversation that i have with this gentleman um he has a son with autism and it's uh, it was just a super profound conversation that once again, I never anticipated having, but I was able to, you know, ask and listen and understand. And I think, you know, we found a common bond that I never thought I'd be finding a common bond with him on. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what kind of where I went with that point. But at the end of the day, I think it's just you. I mean, you have to appreciate the fact that every single person in your life really does have a story and has fought a battle that, you don't know about unless you ask and unless you become curious. So that's, that's what this whole project is, man. The second act podcast <laughs> was after finding out how many cool people that I see every single day had these cool stories. I just wanted to, to give people with interesting stories an opportunity to, uh, to share it so that the people around them did know how, how interesting that, that person sitting on the bus beside them or at the grocery store with them really was. Sure. Um, I, I, I want to, give you an opportunity to chat a little bit about your, your not alone clothing line and what the, what, what you're doing with that and, and kind of what the, what the goal for that is and was uh, as you kicked it off. Yeah. It's funny um, when you say what you're doing with that, because I think to this day, like I still have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but I think it's just a case of we, 
in society have a newfound appreciation for community. Um, I think especially in difficult spaces and unique spaces like the mental health space. And um, I think the biggest thing for us with Not Alone is to generate a community, um, generate a community of acceptance, of vulnerability, of conversation, of meaningful conversation. Um, I think that's our main focus with the whole slapping, you know, mental health words and messaging right on clothing, rather than maybe having to dig through the logo a little bit. Um, I think it's just a case of, you know, getting to a point where our community can wear their vulnerability proudly. And as much as obviously we want our clothing to be something that you can wear on Sunday when you're maybe not feeling so hot and you need that simple reminder on your chest or on your back. But it's a case of I also want people to to be able to go out and, and wear it in public and, and wear it proudly. And because um, you just never know when somebody at the grocery store or somebody at the, you know, Home Depot sees that quote and sees that message and takes that, you know, split second to instantly reflect on that message and instantly reflect on how they're doing. And um, it's been a wild journey and I want to obviously continue to do it. The clothing space is never something I've, um, you know, experienced or had experience with. And I think it's, uh, it's fun. It's different. I love designing stuff. Um, but also being able to give back is something that I really do um, hold close to my heart as well. Just because, like I said, we receive so much love and support afterwards. So if I can find little ways throughout my life to be able to give back, um, then I think that is probably something that I do find or define as success. Um, but then again, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I, my original design was just like not alone and it's okay to not be okay slapped on a hoodie not alone in multicolored lettering um and that is something that is so simple it's two quotes that you can really just look at and understand right away um but for me i mean remembering that i'm not alone in this fight was a huge thing for me and also remembering that it's okay to cry it's okay to feel emotion it's okay to not be okay it's okay to have bad days those are something that i had a hard time you know coming to terms with and being able to, you know, wear it out in public and have generate or conversations generated from, you know, that messaging is, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. And I, I, like I said, I hope to continue to do it, and I hope to continue to be able to get back and in, in any right. So, I want to be respectful of your time here, Tyler. Um, we've we've been here just about an hour, but I, I have two two things left that. I want to, I want to ask you about, um, one is, is the question that I end all my podcasts with where I say, what is, what is success to you now? And how does that look different from, from where, what it might have, you know, before your second act started. So, so I guess we'd have to go back a few years to, if you could think about what success was then and and what it is now, but the last, the second to last thing I want to talk about is the, the one thing when you read up on this, this humble Bronco bus tragedy, the kind of the underlying theme, and you mentioned it a couple of times already was, was how special this team really felt even before. And the name that's come up in just about every time is the coach Darcy. And you talk, he talked like lot, everyone's talking about the impact you guys had in the community and the things that he had you guys doing. And, and it's, it's interesting because very rarely does anyone say he made us do this or he made the kids do that. It's he had them doing this, or this was something that came up. Can you give me a, a blurb about Darcy, just something quick. And then, and then yeah. maybe talk a little bit about success. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I'm going to go back to a quote that um, our other assistant coach, Critter, actually shared. He, he, he shared that, you know, we were building a culture of selfless leaders who serve their community. Um, we believed if we could develop good people that cared about other cheap, uh, uh, cared about other art. Sorry, we believed if we could develop good people that cared about each other, it would translate to success on the on the ice. I mean, he built this team on character. I think that was something that I look back on and I probably wish I was a lot more curious about as to why his coaching philosophy was the way it was. Um, but for us, I mean, as we look back, I think anybody you talk to, it was just super special because he brought in a, a, a group of good hockey players, but also just like really good people. And I think he had so much emphasis and so much value in the fact that, you know, this is a small community that cares about their Broncos um, that supports us every single night that we play. And the least we could do is build a, a culture of, of young leaders that can, you know, truly be the role models for not just the kids in the community, but just like people in general. Um, and I think it was just, it's something that I will always go back to Um and it's probably why it's made us made it so hard over these past couple of years, because like I said, I mean, we were a bunch of, you know, whatever it was, 17 to 20 year old kids that just wanted to just wanted to have fun and experience and be curious and, and learn and understand. And uh, he developed that that environment and he created that for us. And I think anybody you talk to will. I, I mean, I know I'm eternally grateful for what he taught us in the time that I got with him just because he gave everybody a chance and he gave everybody that opportunity and he gave everybody that opportunity to learn. Um, and I think that was just so profound to look back on just because every day was a new day. And he was a coach that, I mean, obviously we had goals and we had things that we wanted to do as a team, but I think the most exciting part for us was like every day truly was a new day and he would kind of bring something new every single day. And he was able to, I mean, every morning skate before a game day, we did a shootout. Um, once we did our little fun little drills to get our legs moving. And I mean, Darcy was always, <laughs> always eager to join and he was always that one that was like um you know would be probably one of the last guys to shoot and it was just exciting to see the excitement that he had um day in and day out to just be involved with something that you know he created um so yeah it's uh yeah, I mean, if I can be half the coach or half the, obviously half the man that I think, you know, Darcy was, then I mean, I think that is probably success in itself. But to answer your other question, for me, before, um, I think success was something that, I don't know if I really like thought about it a ton, but I think for me, I mean, I never really knew what I wanted to do in my life. So I didn't have like that end success goal. Um, I didn't want to just go to school and, and sit in class for four years for something that I wasn't super interested in. Um, I mean, success was huge in my sports life. Growing up in Leduc, we played on a lot of successful teams. Um, and that was something that I'm super fortunate for because I know that, you know, some kids are, are, did have to grow up on losing teams and did have to go through those bumps and that resiliency and adversity. But I mean, for us, we had so much success and we had a lot of good young people come out of Leduc. And, um, but for me now, I think success is just like connection as weird as that may sound like really for me, success is being able to connect. And I think that is something that I've found to be so important in my life is, um, and found to be very open-minded about, um, 
whether it's with my podcast, whether it's with the conversations that I have with the people after my speaking engagements, whether it's the conversations I have with people who might wear not alone, whether it's conversations, I mean, whatever it truly may be, whether it's conversations with kids that I've, um, you know, coached or whether it's whatever it may be, I think I personally will probably define success as like the amount of meaningful connections that I can have in my life. And I know that obviously with connections, there is a balance to that. And there is a balance to that in a sense where I also need to take care of myself and I also need to value the connection with myself. But I think being, being able to hold that compassion and empathy for the people around me really does generate those connections that I want to be a part of. And I've had um, countless conversations and countless meaningful conversations with my people and my support system over these past couple of years. And I now, I don't take those for granted. I, I probably used to quite a bit more, but now it's a case of like, this is, this is real, you know, this is, this is my life. And the best I could do is make sure that I'm, I'm putting as much effort into my connections with the people around me as I am to the things that I do in my life. Um, so, yeah. It's perfect. That's awesome. Um, I just stopped the recording. What a great show with Tyler Smith, who couldn't have been more generous with his time i've i've been uh back and forth with him a little bit over the the last month or so trying to find a time that worked but he's a busy guy and and we we're able to squeeze some time into chat and it's really great to see how he's been able to make the changes in his life that help him deal with the trauma that he's dealt with and then turn around and make it something that isn't just about him and how he can make it so that everybody gets to benefit from him having gone through that trauma. I know from, from being aware of, of the, the humble bus tragedy. And, and this is actually the second um, survivor of, of the tragedy that we've had. We had uh, Ryan Strzynicki on um, about a year ago and, and, you know, those guys are doing what they can to, to not keep all those learnings to themselves. And they do such a great job of getting out there and showing people that there's life after something like that. And Tyler is no different with his clothing line and what he's doing with his speaking and his podcast. Um, it's, it's really just a, a lot of fun um, to, to sit down and talk to these guys and see how much more can be after something like that happens. So great show. Uh, we got a bunch of great ones coming up. Like I was saying last week, there's just a bunch of really good ones coming. Um, we've got uh, Earl Pereira from formerly of Widemouth Mason and the Steadies uh, in in the can. Uh, it's recorded, so I'm, I'm willing to tell you who's in there. I got a couple other great ones that are that are coming up, and uh, really excited to just bring keep bringing you guys these great stories. So it's like we say, there are no wrong answers. There's no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The second act of the podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening. Test the microphone. No mmm noise. You're an asshole.